This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 137. And welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman, and today I'm also joined by Matthew Marister. Hey, Riley, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I am doing terrific. Awesome. Uh, just a minute ago, you and I were talking about uh, Independence Day and kind of catching up with each other on that. Sounds like you had a good one. Yeah, man. I mean, uh, anytime I can spend with family and everything like that and uh, see a bunch of American flags and, you know, people being patriotic, it's it's always a good day, you know? <laughs> That's right. I mean, for me, it was... Uh, Watching uh, tractors go down Main Street and girls riding horses and nice, nice. <laughs> well, there was guys too, I think, riding horses. But uh, there's this one troop of, of uh, you know, cowgirls that I don't know. They do all these fancy things on the horses, you know, right? And anyway, it was Americana at its finest. That's cool, man. Yeah, so I, I dig that kind of stuff. We had a yeah, good time for sure. That's a good man. Yeah, unfortunately, no crazy news, at least from me, and I hope no crazy news from you, but today we've got all kinds of crazy news stories I'm looking <laughs> forward to covering with you. Yeah, we got Including one gentleman that uh, had a little bit of an accident with his gun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and might be missing a member or part of a member. <laughs> yeah. Also, some uh, legislative updates. Uh, there's been some laws passed or some laws uh, proposed to be passed that we want to update you on. Uh, some things also from the NRA that I think are worthy of covering. And um, also some news out of the UK I, I thought was really interesting. This is an interesting story we'll get into here shortly uh, where, well, someone over there was kind of proposing the idea of arming citizens with guns and well, we'll get into it. So Yikes. stand by. Today's episode, however, is brought to you by ConcealedCarry.com's Adhesive Targets. This is one of the latest products we have released, uh, and we now manufacture and have made available for sale on ConcealedCarry.com. These new adhesive targets will stick and stay in temperatures between minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit to plus 160 degrees a special wow. printing process and high-quality materials eliminate glare and, and increase visibility. Sold in packs of 10, 100, or 1,000, I hope that you'll check out the new ConcealedCarry.com adhesive reactive targets at ConcealedCarry.com forward slash stick targets. And for a limited time, save 10% with the coupon code PODCAST10 with a minimum order of $30. And actually, this... Uh, product was just featured on a review uh, on the loadout room. Right. Yeah, uh, nice. They seem to really like that. So that's, that's really cool. And so with that, I'm going to get now into our typical Monday training tip. And uh, in case you didn't know what I, I meant by this one, I think you probably knew what I meant, uh, Matthew. But uh, this is simply hand grip strengthening tools. And, you know, sometimes we feature drills and things for this Monday uh, training tip, but uh, today it is also a training tip. And the training tip is strengthen those hands. I've been thinking about this a lot lately about grip and grip strength. And, you know, the reality is I think what one of the best things we can do uh, to improve our shooting is to really master the art of the grip. And also, I mean, there is some art to it, I think, a little bit, maybe. I don't know if art's the right word or not. But 
we can also use a little bit of brute force. <laughs> I think having stronger hands and stronger grips uh, can really make a big imp- uh, impact on how well we shoot our handguns. Uh, one of those things is, you know, being, you know, you, you, see, you hear guys talk about guns being flat shooting. Well, there's definitely guns that are more prone to shoot flatly because of the way they're designed. And, you know, you got a, they got a nice um, high grip in relation to the barrel and things like that. But if you have a super, super strong grip, you can make things flat shooting if it isn't already. Or if it is fairly flat shooting, like a Glock, a Glock's well known to be flat shooting. If you have a super strong grip, you can make it even more flat shooting. So no matter what, strengthening your hands and your grip strength can make shooting the gun faster uh, and easier. And so this is something I've been working on for, you know, some time now, the last year, year plus actually probably where I've really made an effort. Uh, I've got these little tools. Uh, uh, one of them is a, called a grip master and, uh, oops, I just dropped it on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another one. I got this, uh, kind of a rubber ball, They're durable, thing. right? They're durable. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that one survived <laughs> the drop. Let's see where go. I can't see it. Anyway, I've got the, uh, kind of a little rubber ball thing, you know, a squishy ball that's, uh, you know, yeah, just another, it's just a simple tool. I got a lot of simple tools just laying around the desk here that at odd times I'll sort of pick up a, a grip tool and just work on my grip, you know, because it makes it easy. I don't have to think about it throughout the day. I'm just, you know, kind of, kind of constantly throughout the day, strengthening those hands, strengthening those fingers. Um, I have another tool too. Uh, it is a forearm uh, muscle strengthener thing. What is it called? Uh I'll pull it out here in just a little, just a minute. I'll let you know, <laughs> but it, it, it's it's kind of this twisty thing. Like you you grip it with your hands and you sort of twist inward or you twist outward, and it really kind of strengthens the forearm muscles uh, as well as the grip strength as well. Because I mean, grip strength really comes from a lot of your forearm muscles. Yeah. So anyway, you know, kind of rambling on on and on here, but uh, if in theory, Matthew, and I'm sure you agree, if I had like a Superman type grip strength and I could hold a gun perfectly still when I shot it. Well, man, uh, I could shoot so fast and so quick and my, my, my sights would never move off target. Right. Right. But the reality is nobody can actually shoot where the gun doesn't move at all, but we can certainly make efforts to get closer to that, to get stronger and stronger. And, you know, so, Muscle, muscle that gun a little bit. I mean, in a good way, in a positive way. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I I agree. I mean, a lot of people think, you know, if they hear you say, okay, strengthen your grip or get a stronger grip, they might think, okay, I got to squeeze harder, you know. But it's not, you know, there there's, uh, you know, you don't want to squeeze the, you know, the life out of the gun. But if you, if you have a stronger grip, you know, your hands are stronger and your forearms are stronger, you don't get fatigued as much. You you can manipulate your trigger finger a little bit easier, um, and, and you can definitely grip the gun fir- more firmly without having to, you know, stress out and squeeze so hard. I think there, you know, there's a, a a little confusion between you know just grip strength as far as like you know squeezing it like you're gonna arm wrestle somebody and then you know, actually having a firm grip and, you know, good muscle, um, 
I, I guess, muscle control over the gun, you know? Um, is that, does that make sense or is that, you know, kind of what you're thinking or trying to exp- Well, yeah, I mean, it does make sense and I, I agree. Uh, but I've been thinking about this a lot too, since we had, uh, Rob Latham on the podcast and also on our Guardian Nation live, uh, broadcast we did a few weeks ago. And I, if you listen to him, I think pretty much what he would say is grip the gun as hard and as tight as you can. Now, I know that kind of goes against conventional wisdom for most most people, most instructors included. Uh, I think his argument is learn to grip really solidly so that you minimize the movement of the gun and you maximize recoil control and then learn to not allow that super, super tight grip to uh, influence, you know, to negatively influence your trigger and other right. things, you know, finessing the gun, you know, shooting it accurately and so forth. Yeah, because I, I think what ends up happening is people squeeze um, in, in when when they're squeezing, they're also squeezing that trigger finger. And they, yes. they don't have, because they don't have the strength in their hands or their forearms, so they're getting it by muscle, you know, squeezing their hands, which your hands don't have a ton of you know, uh, muscle tone to them. Right. I mean, um, so if you start overstressing those hands, it it translates into your trigger finger. So yeah, I would say grip the gun really firmly, but you know, there's a balance between where you just start negatively affecting your ability to play shots on target, you know? Um, and it definitely helps if you have some, uh, you know, stronger hands, stronger forearms, um, you know, in those, those devices that you have, I remember the old school, you know, when you're talking about that forearm little machine thing, um, a rope with a bar, and then you tie the rope to the bar and down to a little free weight and you roll up the, the rope. Oh and, yeah. You know, that's, yep. that's, that, that's a good, uh, little good forearm builder right there. So yeah, that, you know. that's a great tip by the way. So yeah, actually, I'm glad you reminded me of that. I remember doing that a bunch when I was, yeah, when I was younger, but I haven't done that in probably years. I'm going to have to do that. Find a, <laughs> find a bar and a rope and, and a weight. And because, uh, yeah, when you do that for, sometimes you don't even get that weight all the way to the top and your forearms are just burning. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so the the one tool I was uh, trying to remember what it's called is the Forearm Max made by Praetorian. And uh, you can hear it here as I work it. And basically, I'm just torquing my forearms inward or outward. And it just really, I just really feel it working, uh, those muscles in the forearm in, in different ways than, you know, even doing that little rope trick or, or other things. So anyway, yeah, I, I think the whole idea here is uh, I was prompted to, to actually talk about the day too, because last week I was working with uh, someone that, uh, or actually maybe it was two weeks ago, that I was showing them what I mean about like a firm grip and I demonstrated for them. Like I put my hand around theirs and squeezed their hand in, in mine. And they were kind of surprised at how much force I was using while I was gripping my gun. Mm -hmm. And I I think many people don't grip their guns tightly enough in my opinion. A hundred percent. Right. hundred percent. Right. Anyway. And I, I do think that we can strengthen those, those hands and those forearms to a point where everything else just becomes so much easier. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we spent quite a bit of time on that today, but I, I really believe in this uh, very 
passionately about this this sort of thing. This has been kind of a mission for me the last year or two as I've really worked to strengthen the hands and the, and the grips. It's made a big difference for me as a shooter. Today's episode, by the way, is also brought to you by Pig Lube and Mantis X. And so without further ado, let's get into today's first news story. And this one is out of Oregon from the Oregon Firearms Federation, a kind of a gun rights uh, uh, organization website uh, there in uh, Oregon. And they are reporting that uh, the article here says today, uh, this is actually dated on July 6th, uh, so last Thursday, I believe. Today, the Oregon House approved one of the most dangerous, hateful, and mean-spirited pieces of legislation ever introduced. (laughs) It's a pretty strong statement. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And and what that legislation is, is Senate Bill... 719A, the product of Republican Senator Brian Boquist's collusion with the most militant anti-gunners in the legislature. Boy, they really like strong uh, words on their articles here, don't they? Uh, It says, we'll now allow the police to come to your home and confiscate your firearms and deadly weapons with no accusation or conviction of a crime. Uh, There is no question this bill will cost people's lives. Now a vindictive family or household member has the power to have your rights and property stolen from you simply because they chose to make an accusation against you. So what they're referring to, and we actually, basically this is a follow-up to a story we shared um, probably a couple months ago now on the podcast about this uh, potential legislation out of Oregon, where basically uh, this this bill, this this law, uh, and it's most likely going to be signed by the Oregon governor uh, because she is quite liberal where it comes to guns. And basically, you know, individuals can make, um, they're not far off from saying from, you know, making accusations against a person. And this comes through this concept of what they call, or they deem it as an extreme risk protection order. So, you know, you're familiar with protection orders, right, Matthew? I mean, you were a cop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you've probably been involved in the enforcement of these in your career. Unfortunately, uh, quite a bit. <laughs> In most situations that uh, where a, a protection order is involved, I mean, w- what types of situations are are those typically? Yeah, I, I, a lot of times, you know, obviously it comes to mind domestic situations. Um, you might have situations between... Um, you know, people in apartment complexes that can't get along and they get a restraining order against somebody on the other side of the apartment complex and things. But mostly it comes to comes from family members, um, you know, um, family members like a, a husband, wife um, or a, a family member, uh, parents against their children, you know, um, and unfortunately, you know, and I understand the whole thing about, you know, we need to have protection orders and things like that, because um, while it is just a piece of paper, and I I understand, you know, some people are like, oh, it's just a piece of paper. It does give law enforcement the tools to arrest um, and if there is not another crime committed. And I think that's kind of where these people are, where the uh, outrage or, you know, uh, anger with this bill comes is that, um, you know, the, it, it is a tool, say, for instance, if you don't have a restraining order against your ex-husband or your ex-wife or whatever, and they're constantly coming over your house, well, the cops can't really do anything about it. Um, but if you have a restraining order against them, now all of a sudden there's something they can do to put them in jail or something like that. Um, 
but there's some caveats that come along with that restraining order, you know, and mm-hmm. I think this uh, law kind of points out some of those, some of those things. Yeah. So, so here's the thing, and here's some of the more details of this particular law. Basically, what it allows someone to do is, so you have a, a petitioner, which in many cases will be, uh, you know, because like you were just describing, Matthew, um, a lot of times, I mean, these are domestic situations a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a spouse, uh, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, uh, and other family members are oftentimes involved. It can be just about anyone, though. And so this petitioner makes a statement. Uh, if I'm, I have the actual language of the bill uh, right in front of me here, and it says that the the a the petition for an extreme risk protection order must be sub- supported by a written affidavit signed by the petitioner under oath, or an oral statement taken under oath by the petitioner or any other witness the pet- petitioner may produce. And in determining whether to issue this extreme risk protection order, the court shall consider the following: history of suicide threats or attempts of acts or acts of violence by the respondent. Uh, this would be the person that the order would be against, the uh, respondent. A history of use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force. Uh, a previous conviction for a misdemeanor involving violence. A stalking offense, an offense constituting domestic violence. Now, these are all legit things. But here's the thing. The way this law is written is it is a ex parte order. Do you understand ex parte? Yeah, and, and that is the biggest problem. Um, there, there's no, uh, there's not, not an official hearing. There's not an official charge or anything. Um, it's basically, you know, you hear one side of the story, you might, the other person may be able to, to say their piece, but it's, there's no evidence other than, you know, um, what's there at that specific point in time. Um, and, and uh, the problem with that is if it's granted and, you know, we've seen um, there is a wide, I guess, uh, swath of, you know, judges out there that lean one way or the other. And, um, you know, if if that person, um, if that judge decides, yeah, I, I agree with this person or I'm going to err on the side of caution, because I think that's really what judges are going to start doing or people are going to start, well, it's kind of 50-50, but I'm going to err on the side of caution and and go with the petitioner. Um, this is good for, this This order would be good for a year. And um, the person can, can um, uh, appeal it um, and it has to be heard within uh, three weeks. So, it, it, you know, it's almost like your your rights are taken away based on uh, a statement and some, you know, maybe some flimsy, flimsy evidence or just kind of a, you know, a f- 51% of the, you know, uh, of the evidence or, and it just, uh, and then you have to jump through hoops to prove that, you know, no, that's not right. That's just a vindictive X or that's just a, mm-hmm. you know, and, and anybody who's, you know, you spend time in law enforcement, you're, you know, you're a law enforcement officer and anybody who spent time around um, domestic violence or, you know, family court will know that people use the court system vindictively against one another. And this would be a tool that somebody could use and, and um, abuse yeah. to take away somebody's right. And it, it, I think that's the biggest kind of scary thing about, you know, this. Yep. And, and, you know, I, okay, so here's the thing. 
no doubt there are situations where this sort of thing may be warranted. As far as what I mean by that is that we're, I mean, there are definitely legit situations where uh, a lot of times a spouse or an ex-spouse uh, is intent on and will harm the other, the other spouse uh, and, or partner. And I mean, these sorts of things, they do exist. And, and I understand the intent of wanting to protect uh, you know, these individuals that may be victims of domestic violence or abuse. But we're talking about Second Amendment rights here. And the, there's also this other thing in this country that we believe in. It's called due process. And anytime you remove a right from someone, you take a right away, especially a major right like this, there needs to be, there must be due process or we turn into a lawless land because we turn into a place where the statement, a simple statement of one individual can take away second amendment rights. And that, that, that's there, there's a problem there. Unfortunately, like I said, I understand the intent and the desire to protect certain individuals, but you're completely right, Matthew, in that there are people that will use this sort of thing vindictively. In fact, I'm sure you've seen it where uh, sometimes a spouse or a partner requests, you know, files for a protective order against the other partner or spouse. Like when the order should actually be probably filed against the other individual. Absolutely. It's almost like they want to jump the gun and, oh, this person's going to, you know, I'm going to file a complaint before they file a complaint. And it's, you know, and unfortunately it affects law enforcement and I know it affects um, all the way up the chain because no one wants to be responsible for saying, you know what, I don't believe this person. And then they end up in, in saying, you know, I, I'm not going to file this protective order for you. And then it's actually a legitimate case. So no one wants to be that person, right? So they always err on the side of, well, if I'm not, uh, you know, it sounds fishy. I don't really believe it, but you know what? I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be the person that, you know, at lens, ends lets this happen on my watch type thing. Um, so there can be a, an emphasis or, you know, a, a, the shift to become over, use this over, you know, more often than what it should be um, protective orders and things like that. And um, you know, it's, I, I've just seen so many, I'm, I'm, I, I totally believe in protective orders. I think they're a good tool for law enforcement. I, I think that they're good, um, but I think they have to be used appropriately and there has to be a, a good bar, you know, a high bar of evidence before somebody goes and loses their, their rights. I mean, I'm reading the, the bill and I'm just looking at section one where, you know, it says deadly weapon and it defines a deadly weapon as any instrument, article or substance specifically designed for and presently capable of causing death or serious injury. So, wow. I mean, if you get it as a police officer, if you were dispatched to go, you know, seize, you know, enforce this order, are you going to go through and take every single knife, every single caustic chemical, every, you know, I mean, a baseball bat, tire, I mean, you might as well just put this person in a in a padded room because anything could be presently capable of causing death or serious bodily injury. I mean, a, a shoelace could, right? I mean, so you you know, I think some of these times, some of these things get overly broad reaching and and have the ability to be misused. And I just, I under, like you said, I understand the the intent, 
but sometimes the intent, the the unintended consequences of things like this um, end up, you know, hurting more than helping. Yeah. Yeah. So get this too. This is a statement. I'm going to read part of a statement that must be included. It says uh, at the time, you know, in in the actual protection order itself, when this is served to the respondent, uh, it must include this statement to the subject of this protection order. This order is valid until the date and time noted above. If you have not done so already, you are required to surrender all deadly weapons in your custody. You must immediately surrender all deadly weapons in your custody, control, or possession to insert name of local law enforcement agency, a gun dealer, or a third party who may lawfully possess the deadly weapons. You must immediately surrender to insert name of local law enforcement agency any concealed handgun license issued to you. So, and I promise you, if an individual is making this, uh, uh, you know, statement against you. They're filing this affidavit uh, on behalf of this uh, extreme risk protection order. If they know you've got guns, you can bet you they're telling the judge that you have guns. And so the judge is going to know if you have not turned those in, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody will show up and they're going to take those from you. And the other thing I think is interesting here, Matthew, in in, in reading what I just read, it says that you must surrender them to a third party who may lawfully possess a deadly weapon. So it does give you the option to say, take them to a friend. Right. Um, Who, what's to say, or, you know, let's, let's just suppose this order was issued legitimately. Like there really is a cause or reason to be concerned about the respondent. Uh, if they are allowed to, I guess, just surrender them to a friend or some other family member, who's to say they can't just get those back when they want to go hurt somebody? But anyway, so uh, the big issue here, of course, though, is the taking away of Second Amendment rights without due process, without a, uh, a legitimate, you know, uh, course no of... Crime. There is no Right, right. Yeah, no crime, no conviction. No hearing, you know, not a chance to, uh, uh, you know, speak on your defense or, you know, face your accuser. So those are... you can, but not till later once a hearing can finally be... At three weeks. (laughs) The surrendering is proactive. Right. And that's what's crazy to me. And then if you get caught with a a weapon after this has been issued, they they only charge you with a misdemeanor. So, sure, sure. so violation of this is only going to be a misdemeanor. I, I just, uh, you know, it's not going to be, I, I, I don't know. I just see it being very problematic and yeah. um, the potential for abuse. Like I said, I, maybe I'm just cynical because I've seen, you know, I've seen people use their kids as, you know, leverage against the other spouse and things like that. I just, I see this as, as a tool for vindictive people to go out and say, you know what, he hit me or she hit me and she keyed my car. She you know, she has guns at her house or he has guns at her his house. And the judge is going to hear this and say, you know what? Guns are involved. I'm not going to be the judge that allowed this to happen. Go take his guns or her guns. And, you know, if he wants to appeal it in three weeks, we'll we'll deal with it then. But exactly. in those three weeks, we'll just uh, kind of chill his his constitutional rights or her. Con- and and I, I think that's a scary place. Yeah. It really is. So a scary law that is uh, that has been passed by both the House and the Senate in Oregon last week and is now headed to the governor's desk where it will likely be signed. Turning now, oh, and by the way, I found the grip master. So as we are recording here, I am uh, (laughs) sitting here working on the grip. (laughs) Nice. Moving on to uh, a federal 
uh, law or bill that has been proposed. And this is being called the Shush Act, S-H-U-S-H Act, uh, which is proposed by Senators Mike Lee of Utah and Mike Crapo of Idaho. And yes, it's Crapo, uh, not Crapo, <laughs> in case you're wondering. I, I know, I used to live in Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I just returned from there last week, actually. So this is called the Silencers Helping Us Save Hearing Act of 2017, or the Shush Act of 2017. And this is kind of interesting, Matthew. So folks should already be somewhat familiar with the Hearing Protection Act, the HPA bill, which basically proposed making the purchase of silencers. And yes, silence. I know some people, somebody will probably write into the podcast, write into us here saying uh, it, they're suppressors, dummy. Well, actually, legally, the way it's classified by the ATF, officially they are known as, uh, under federal law, as silencers, even though, yes, I know, they don't actually silence the bullet. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, so the, the the HPA bill would classify silencers much like a firearm to where you can purchase them without a stamp tax, you know, the $200 uh, tax that you pay uh, while you file your paperwork with the ATF and then wait, you know, 10 months, a year, uh, which is about the, the wait times right now to finally get the approval and then be able to complete the purchase and, and transfer of your silencer. The Shush Act takes it a step further and would classify suppressors or silencers as accessories, firearm accessories, meaning that there would be virtually no regulation to the purchase or possession of a silencer. Wow. I'm right. kind of blown away, to be honest with you. Uh, I suspect there's very little chance of getting this passed, but I am encouraged to see that there are uh, federal, you know, that, that we have legislators in Washington, D.C. that are willing to take it this far. What, what's your take, Matthew? Yeah, I, I agree. A lot of times, you know, these uh, legislators, they don't want to take a, a stance like this, you know, because they risk alienating certain groups or segments of voters or whatnot. But, you know, anytime I know, anytime you try to take away or say, we're not going to tax this anymore. Uh, I mean, government's going to be like, oh, no, <laughs> how are we going to get our money? Right. So that's that's number one. But I think a lot of this suppressor stuff comes um, from a just an ignorance uh, of the actual use of these things and how difficult it is to get them. And, and you know, you know, let's face it, people can make a, a suppressor or a silencer out of, you know, household parts. Um, and so it's not like if you really, that you're going to, by allowing, making these things available, that you're going to suddenly flood the market and, you know, people are going to be running around doing drive-bys with silencers and things like that. I mean, if they wanted to, they'd get them anyways, they'd make them whatever. Um, but I really, I think this would be tremendous, um, for people that, you know, shoot on their own property and their neighbors complain and, um, gun ranges and it would definitely drive down a lot of the cost for, you know, your average person, hunters and things like that. I mean, um, shooting with the suppressors is so much fun, you know, it's just, it's so nice and it's different. It's just, it's nice. I, I don't know. Um, I think this would be great. I, I'm like you, I don't think it's, I think it has a, a small chance, but 
you know, I give kudos to the, to the senators for, for, you know, standing up like that. Yeah, it definitely has an uphill battle uh, to get this passed and onto the president's desk. But uh, I think one thing we all could do is send letters to our and make phone calls to our representatives and senators there in Washington, D.C. and let them know that this is something they should get on board with, that it's time that we recognize the ridiculousness it is that uh, suppressors or silencers are regulated in the manner that they are. Uh, the reality that, you know, and here's the thing. It's so interesting to me, Matthew, that silencers are regulated more tightly than the actual guns are, but by themselves, they don't do anything. You know, it's <laughs> exactly. the gun that's the actual deadly weapon piece of it. All the suppressor does is suppress mildly the report of the gun being fired and the thought is by the you know the the anti-gunners that oh no then we won't be able to tell where you know the the threat is coming from (laughs) you know where i'm being shot from and you know what the reality is it in most urban environments it doesn't matter whether the shot is suppressed not silent not completely silenced suppressed of course uh because in urban environments, you usually can't tell where a shot is coming from anyway. If the the uh, congressional baseball uh, practice shooting uh, a while back now, a month or so ago, uh, that's a great example because there was a video that was released by a guy uh, that was right there by the ball field. And he's recording on his cell phone, uh, you know, as the shots are being fired. And he's like, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? The whole time. You can't tell where this guy is. And that was not a suppressed weapon. Right. Right. Because when you're in an urban environment with all these different, you know, buildings and objects and things that are bouncing sound around, it can make it very difficult to to know where a shot is coming from. And uh, I suspect that where people, most people would be concerned with shootings and things would be more likely in an urban environment. So anyway, the point is, it really should be an issue. I would like to see us really uh, take some steps to protect our hearing or make it easier to protect our hearing because whether you shoot without or with hearing protection, it makes it safer for us. Uh, and we all know somebody that probably has lost, in fact, myself included, most likely has lost some uh, hearing because of shooting, all the shooting of guns that I have that I do and have done in the past, especially. Mm-hmm. So, uh, now turning to a story on uh, the Abilene Reporter News uh, website, which is a uh, uh, publication there in Abilene, Texas. They are reporting, and there's a number of sources. This is a kind of a story I saw all over the place, but I uh, p- picked this particular one. Uh, they are reporting how a federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit filed by three University of Texas at Austin professors seeking to overturn the state's 2015 campus carry, carry law, which allows people to carry concealed handguns inside most public university buildings. District Judge Lee Yakel. I guess is his name, wrote in his decision that the professors, Jennifer Lynn Glass, Lisa Moore, and Mia Carter, couldn't present any concrete evidence to substantiate their fears that campus carry would have a chilling effect on free speech. So this is the classic argument where one second you know, where one bill of right is infringing on another bill of right, the first amendment, free speech, and thus, you know, 
the other one, the Second Amendment issue, the concealed carry on campus issue, should not be allowed. But it became very clear <laughs> in the arguments, and this this judge was not afraid to, to say so, that there is no evidence here. There is nothing to suggest that free speech is being hampered because of allowing camp or concealed carry on campuses in Texas or anywhere for that matter. So kudos yeah, to this yeah. judge for getting it right. <laughs> I thought professors were pretty intelligent in, in general, but I guess these three didn't didn't fit that mold because uh, this is ridiculous. I mean, I, I've heard, I've even heard it. You know, um, they don't. It's in the same argument extends to police officers on campus as well. I've heard the same argument that having police on campus uh, makes people intimidated and they're not free to do what they want and things like that. Just the mere presence of a police officer. And, and you know, this is this is kind of a warped, um, a warped way of looking at, you know, uh, uh, um, your freedoms. And, and um, I, I, I'm so glad that, that this um, judge basically, you know, said, no, there's no concrete evidence. I mean, uh, it, 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 the, the argument was having a gun that, that their first amendment rights were, uh, uh, chilled because having a gun possibly in the classroom would make them hesitant to discuss controversial issues. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you, <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I can think of a lot of things on, comp on college campuses that make bringing up controversial issues, you know, um, suppressed. Ha having a concealed carry firearm or the possibility of a student having a concealed carry firearm is not one of them. Um, these people are normally, you know, law-abiding people, vast background checks and training and all this. And, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it really is. Quoting from the article, it says here that campus carry in Texas became law in 2015, but didn't go into effect until August 1st, 2016. It stirred up widespread opposition among faculty and many students, especially on the UT Austin campus. But so far, there have been no major incidents and protests on campus have all but disappeared. And you know why that is? It's because it really is a dumb issue. And over time, you know, because it, it's... You, we all knew that when this passed, there would be no sudden or dramatic change to life on college campuses as we know it. That, you know, there would not be suddenly, you know, classrooms turning into the wild, wild west or the OK Corral. That uh, students were, weren't going to be going into professors' offices and shooting them over a grade. I mean, not to, not, to not to suggest that couldn't happen or wouldn't happen. I mean, but it could happen even if they didn't have concealed exactly, carry. Exactly. <laughs> right. And so, so it, it becomes a non-issue. They realize it, that all that energy is going to die because boy, they'd have to, <laughs> they'd have to have some really, uh, strong, you know, determined, uh, de or determination to keep up those protests because ain't nothing happening anytime soon. You know, you know what's just popped in my head, and it's what's kind of shocking is three stories back we talked about, you know, the protection of people, right? Like we want people, we're willing to let somebody go in and say, "Hey, I want to get a restraining order against this person," and because I'm in fear of my my safety, right? We want as a society to be able to protect people. Well, even with evidence that nothing bad happens. 
when people have concealed carry fire, you know, a, a concealed carry license, um, you, they want to take away somebody's right to protect themselves with a firearm simply because they're on a campus and somebody is scared that there's a gun on camp. It's, it's weird. It's like, you know, on one hand we're saying, oh, we want to jump to, you know, through these hoops to protect people, which is great. But if you want to protect yourself, no, no, you're not allowed to do that. And these, you know, and it's just weird to me. I, I'm just, it just kind of popped in my head was like, how, how, opposite of you know what i mean like it, it's just i don't know it maybe maybe i'm drawing two two lines to connecting two things that are separate but to me you know if you want to protect people let them protect themselves first and foremost yep the amazing thing to me is is that they that people are unable to or unwilling to look at the facts where we've had campus carry in places like utah and Colorado, and a number of other states, and in Utah and Colorado now for quite some time, where, to my knowledge, uh, and folks, you're welcome to correct me if I'm wrong, but I can't think of, I can't point at a single incident in in any of these states where campus carry is allowed, and specifically Colorado and Utah, that I watch the news in very closely, where some, where a student or someone that was lawfully possessing a gun and lawfully carrying it concealed on campus, committed an act of violence with that gun uh, on campus. But I can think of incidences where someone that brought a gun from off of campus uh, in, in many places, including many states where it's not allowed, and did commit acts of violence on that on those campuses, regardless of, like I said, if it was legal or not legal, and regardless of if they possessed a permit or not. And, and but but the amazing thing is is we don't have really any incidences of concealed carriers committing heinous acts on campuses since these laws have been passed. Meanwhile, we have plenty of instances where students on campus have defended themselves, and a lot more often than not, it, it's in the form of of rapes or mm-hmm. robberies. Uh, you know, that sort of thing that happens quite frequently. Anyway, so, you know, far more lives have been probably saved uh, or robberies or sexual assaults have been prevented uh, than where a law-abiding citizen that was lawfully carrying on a campus committed a crime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, this is a fun story. We kind of teased it a little bit in the intro. <laughs> in Florida, Cedric. What's that? Cedric Jelks. Oh yes, well, that's the gentleman's name. Cedric Jelks uh, will go down in in history uh, because. Uh, and by the way, I got a, a Facebook comment uh, from a, a listener of the podcast. So Chuck, you know who you are, and uh, you actually shared this specific story with us. I was already aware of the story, but I went ahead and and, and used your link to the story you uh, sent sent us in through Facebook and Chuck, uh, <laughs> I don't know if I should share this on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Chuck, uh, said that he, he sent in another funny comment along with the story he said, you know, something about the gun being half cocked. And now this man is, well, uh, you, you get the picture. So man's <laughs> Florida man sits on gun, accidentally shoots self in genitals. Uh, I'm just going to read the story. It's pretty short. A Florida man was rushed to the hospital on Friday after suffering an accidental gunshot wound to the penis. According to the WKMG-TV, 
uh, 38-year-old Cedric Jelks of Jacksonville, Florida, climbed into his car and sat on his gun, which, which accidentally went off. Jelks immediately rushed to his girlfriend's house and went straight to the bathroom. Jelks' girlfriend quickly saw that Jelks had suffered a gunshot wound to his genitals and immediately rushed him to the hospital where he underwent surgery. It's possible that Jelks will face charges for possessing a firearm as he was previously convicted of cocaine possession and not legally allowed to own a gun. Oh, yeah. Bam. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I don't I don't know. The I think what I normally would do if I shot myself is first rush into the bathroom, right? Cuz you you're trying to think of like, do I really have to go to the hospital because I know I'm going to get arrested for this. I'm not supposed to have a firearm. You know, I'm a uh, I've been convicted of a felony cocaine possession, probably half high and you know, I mean, come on. <laughs> this guy <laughs> This, uh, you know, I feel I feel bad for the guy who shot himself, but I mean, um, if you know, it, it, for the average reader, they probably think, "See, that's guns are bad, guns are dangerous." You know, they're just going to go off. But I think I, I'm suspecting there's a little bit more to this story than than meets the eye. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, guns, we know, and you and I, Matthew, established this, I think, pretty firmly. Uh, in that uh, we spent a good deal of time. And I think it was in the episode where we talked about appendix carry or no, no. Well, we may may have talked about it there too, but about, uh, yes, uh, is your holster dangerous? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we talked about guns don't go off by themselves. Yeah. Right. And so we usually have to do something stupid to injure ourselves with the gun. And, you know, sometimes that's because a lot of times it's because people don't use a holster or they don't use an appropriate holster. And in this case, it's quite clear that's what happened. He did not have his gun in a holster. It was just sitting on the seat, I guess. Mm. I don't know. It says it sat on his gun and it went off. So, I mean, you you said you feel bad for the guy. I guess I kind of do, but I kind of, I don't know. Maybe I'm not a good person, but I kind (laughs) of don't feel bad for him because... (laughs) I'm working on my compassion skills here. I've been told I have to be more compassionate and giving. So that's that's what I've been doing. So anyway, take this as a lesson to be learned that, you know, we need to obviously responsibly carry our guns and let's not be like Cedric Jelks. So. And don't do drugs either because you'll lose your gun rights too. That's right. Among other things, your teeth and friends and money. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now, uh, th- this is one story I kind of couldn't wait to get to. Uh, and this was on, uh, this is on NRAILA.org, uh, the Institute for Legislative Action uh, arm of the NRA. And this is a great story. It says here, this is the title, Update, Thought Police Target Freethinking UK Police Commissioner. I'll I'll quote from the story here a little bit. It says, The city council in the United Kingdom, Port City of Plymouth, gave their finest impression of George Orwell's think poll this week when the council formally admonished Devon and Cornwall Police and Crime Commissioner Alison Hernandez for her off-the-cuff comments to a BBC radio program following the recent terrorist attacks in Manchester and London. According to reports, Hernandez's mere suggestion that an armed citizenry might be capable of providing some protection against terrorist violence proved too much for the council to tolerate. 
During a June 12th interview on BBC Radio Cornwall, Hernandez was asked by a caller and licensed gun dealer, if there should ever be a terrorist attack, what happens if I and other people try to defend themselves using those guns? What would be the repercussions? Hernandez responded that this type of citizen response, this is quoting from her, might be some of our solution to our issues, end quote. When pressed further on the topic by the BBC radio host, Hernandez added, quote, I'm just saying, let's officially have a look at that and see what would be the implications of it. We work with businesses to keep our communities safe. I'd really be interested in exploring that with the chief constable, end quote. The negative official response to Hernandez's sensible, sensible comments were immediate. That same day as the radio interview the Devon and Cornwall Deputy Chief Constable Paul Netherton issued a statement rebutting Hernandez's comments. He said, Under no circumstances would we want members of the public to arm themselves with firearms, not least because officers responding would not know who the offenders were, and quite obviously they would not have the time to ask. Yeah, all right. Oh, I should have read that, wrote, read that with a British accent, right? <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you to get into your, your British. <laughs> so... Uh, and now the uh, the city council of Devon and Cornwall has uh, issued a formal reprimand. Uh, they stated this, that we endorse Deputy Chief Constable Paul Netherton's view that it would be definitely an emphatic no to non-police officers taking up arms and that this council believes that a proposal to utilize domestically owned firearms is a crass and inadequate response to mounting concerns about police cuts. So... Here you go. This is the this is the mindset of the UK and of much of the world that does not believe like we Americans believe and that does not have this thing called the Second Amendment. We know, Matthew, after all the stories we share each week on this podcast, just how often citizens, regular Joe citizens, defend their lives and their families' lives and the lives of others because they are allowed to and they're able to. Uh, to do so, to to defend themselves by the with the use of their firearms, legally carried and possessed firearms, but in much of the world that sort of thing doesn't always exist. And the mindset is that it would be crass. And what was the other word? Uh, uh, crass and inadequate and response. Inadequate. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What's your response? It sounds. It, it sounds to me that you know that. Um, they're having difficulty getting over the fact that there was an American revolution and it was fought by citizens standing up for their gun rights and other rights and, you know, uh, able to defend themselves against the king because they had firearms. Maybe they're just shell-shocked because of that and they don't want uh, their citizenry to have guns. I, I don't understand, but um, to say something to, to uh, for the population to own a firearm is crass. I mean, it, it's just, I mean, maybe there's a translational, you know, discrepancy between, you know, British English and United States English, American English, but I, I can't understand how simply owning a firearm to protect yourself could be considered crass. I, I think the barbaric things that are happening all over the world um, and the violence against innocent people, I think that's more crass than somebody saying, you know what, I'd like to possess a firearm in case something were to happen and I don't want to be, you know, beheaded or hacked to death. I think that's a little crass. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 
Yeah. And the irony, the irony of this story is that not only is, well, the Second Amendment, which doesn't exist, obviously, in the UK, not only is it under attack in this article, but also the, the First Amendment or free speech is under attack because you have a city council that has seen, you know, or that have take, that has taken measures to try to censor uh, the viewpoints of their deputy uh, uh, police commissioner. Uh, she was not deterred by this, by the way. She said, it will not detract me from representing the views of the public, which is central to my role. As previously stated, I don't want to see armed vigilantes roaming the streets, but a discussion about how the public responds to any immediate terror threat is completely valid. Freedom of speech and the ability to have open public debate about the issues raised with me will continue. So she is not deterred in voicing her opinion that at least we ought to look at the possibility of armed citizenry being maybe able to respond in these instances of public terrorist events. And I got to say, I agree. Yeah, I mean kudos to her and i think anybody who reads this story uh really it should be a sobering reminder of how important you know our bill of rights and our freedoms are and how unique our government and our and our our way of life is and and sometimes if we've never traveled out of the country or we're not really well versed in the way it you know things are in other countries we we take it for granted you know we yeah. kind of just assume that that's how it is all over and 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 it's not it really isn't and uh we should be grateful every day that you know we we're born here or you know assimilated here and um and are protected by these these rights this type of story, I think, is relevant because if we are not careful, this is the direction that certain individuals and members of our society would like for this country to go. Yeah, so, I mean, everybody, I mean, a lot of anti-gun people are always, you know, they want to mimic the European style of you know, gun control or gun laws. And, and, you know, these are the types of laws. This is the type of idea that just simply owning a firearm to protect yourself would be crass, yep. you know, and, and it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's not our, our, you know, it's not what, what this country was founded on. Yep. It's not what's made, made us how we are today. Yep. Now, speaking of law enforcement, in an unfortunate story, last week, uh, the night, I think, of Independence Day, July 4th, uh, a member of law enforcement, uh, Officer Miasotis Familia, uh, was uh, basically ambushed and executed when she was shot through the window of the uh, police vehicle that she was sitting in. This occurred, of course, in uh, New York City, uh, like I said, the night of Independence Day celebrations. Uh, it was an unprovoked attack. Uh, it's incredibly disheartening and, and, and sad that this even occurred. Um, as we know, the uh, suspect in that case uh, was chased down by uh, other officers in the area and was killed in a subsequent shootout. Uh, the NRA has now come out and said, uh, look, we need to back our police. There's, it's clear that there is a, there's a war on police. We've seen quite an uptick. I mean, where you had 41 officers that were uh, fatally shot and killed in 2015, we had 64 last year. So far this year, there's been 24 officers that have been fatally shot. Uh, at this time last year, that number was 22. Uh, the latter part of last year had quite an accelerated uptick 
in uh, terms of uh, officer officers that were shot and killed on duty. Uh, actually, or officers, I should just say on duty. It's officer, police officers that have been shot and killed. Uh, so the NRA is saying, it has basically come out and they have launched what they call the Back Our Blue initiative. Their hope is to uh, encourage and promote a positive uh, uh dialogue as well as recognition of law enforcement in our communities. And uh, they're encouraging people to use the hashtag uh, back our blue uh, in, you know, pushing forth this uh, agenda. Uh, They also uh, recognize the nonprofit organization, national law enforcement Memorial fund, which uh, tracks line of duty deaths uh, and also, um, gives, you know, they, they pay out money to families and it has paid out more than $3 million, by the way, to families of slain policemen and women raised through uh, donations. And so I would certainly encourage, I just wanted to share this, that, you know, the NRA is uh, getting on board with and, and promoting this new Back Our Blue initiative. Uh, I'd love to see all you folks out there do the same uh, and also support great organizations like the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund. Uh, Links in the show notes. uh, If you'd like to go check out the uh, National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund and its organization and what they do and what they stand for. Um, So there you have it. And uh, also one other story from the NRA ILA. Uh, This one's titled Remarkable Finding from a Pew Survey. And this one is pretty interesting. Uh, it caught my eye because Pew recently did a survey on firearm-related attitudes and experiences of U.S. adults, and they found, based on uh, survey respondents, that more than 14 million Americans are what they said. They they said that based on their results that 14 million Americans are NRA members. <laughs> and what's interesting is that the NRA has come out and they've said that is wrong. We actually have only about 5 million members. Now, it could be that 14 million Americans consider themselves NRA members, whether that be, you know, a family member of theirs is a member of the NRA, and thus, by proxy, they they too feel that they are a member. Or maybe they were a member, you know, they joined uh, some time ago, uh, technically yearly dues are, I think, $35 if you were to actually just pay you know, per year. And, you know, maybe you did one year and you let your membership lapse, but you still think of yourself, I guess, as being an NRA member. But either way, uh, <laughs> the the point here that the NRA is trying to make is that Pew wanted to represent their survey results as being, you know, a look into the mindset, you know, the attitudes and experiences of NRA members. And, NRA was making a very clear uh, delineation that that's not entirely accurate because it can't be accurate because we do not have 14 million members. We actually only have 5 million active, you know, paying whatever members. And so thus the survey results should not necessarily be trusted either because, you know, the, the, the membership number is way off base. Uh, I just thought it was really interesting that you know, I, I got to give props to the NRA, first of all, for being willing to come out and say, look, our actual membership is this. Right. Uh, which is much yeah. lower than what was being reported by Pew. And so that kind of actually doesn't, I mean, like the NRA doesn't have, uh, 
<laughs> it would be in their best interest to probably make themselves appear bigger, you know, in membership right. than they actually are. And so I'm glad they corrected the record on this. And I'm also glad they're pointing out that the Pew survey results maybe don't necessarily represent actual NRA member uh, opinions. Yeah, I, I just, anytime I see polls, I'm always like uh, skeptical. I mean, it, 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 the polls have been so wrong on so many different things, and especially on a topic that is going to be politically spun. I think um, there's always the tendency to take the questions asked or ask them in a way that doesn't really reflect a truthful answer and then represent the figures in a way that isn't really representative of, you know, the poll in itself. And so, you know, when if you're just polling, you know, a blind study on certain things that aren't really political, okay, you know, you can get a a, a good, you know, uh, I think an accurate response. But anything that has to do with guns, and then it's you know, it's it's reported on. I always, either way, whether it's pro gun or anti gun, I mean, you know, you, you take the the st- statistics and present them in a way that that kind of benefits you. Um, but this was just, I think, a blatant, you know, a, a blatant way of showing, hey, the, these polls aren't always don't don't take these polls as gospel, you know. There's they're they're not always accurate, um, it, you know. If you're off by nine million um, respondents, I mean, I think that that's <laughs> that shows a little bit of skewed numbers. Yeah. Anyway, I just really thought it was interesting that the NRA was not afraid to. Um, come out with the facts that fact which yeah. facts don't necessarily um, uh, you know bolster their own position uh, as far as the the number of members that they have and frankly I mean were you surprised to learn that there's only five five million NRA members oh yeah well, I mean when they said 14 million I'm reading and I'm like okay that, and then I said five million I mean that's that's not as much as many as you think, you know, because the the NRA is looked upon as being this huge lobbying arm and this, you know, army of, you know, uh, Americans that are just, you know, gun nuts and and they make it seem like the NRA is this huge, you know, uh, group. But I mean, five million. I mean, it's it's big, but it's it's definitely not as big as you would think. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that, that and. I, I thought there was many more, yeah, many more than five million. I was I was surprised, but the fact is, the NRA is the largest uh, gun rights organization in the U.S. And it, it even though it, that actual membership number is maybe smaller than what we thought, it still represents actually a it is it is still a large body of membership, uh, and it is much larger than a lot of anti-gun organizations that are fighting against our gun our gun rights. Uh, and as the poll may have kind of brought to the surface or brought to light, there are many, many, many more gun owners that self-identify with you know the NRA and what it stands for and and the organization that it is, even though they may not be dues-paying members. So anyway, just kind of interesting. And like I said, caught my eye. And and I thought we'd share that little bit of a story here today. Let's get into our first justified story. Coming out of New Orleans, uh, Louisiana, uh, title is Man Shoots Attacker in 
Trem or Trem. I'm not exactly sure how you pronounce this. Uh, it's the name of a neighborhood there in the New Orleans area. This was reported on Fox8Live.com. Uh, and the New Orleans police are investigating an assault and shooting in the Trem neighborhood, it says. Police say the incident happened just before 2 a.m. Saturday in the 1300 block of I'm not even trying to pronounce it. <laughs> Some avenue. <laughs> According to the victim, he was walking when he was suddenly body slammed to the ground by an unknown black male. Because he says he, that he feared for his life, he told the man that he was armed. Police says the victim then pulled his gun from the waist and shot the suspect three times. The suspect then fled the scene while reaching for his waistband. The police told police or the victim told police that he still feared for his life and chased the suspect while shooting at him. The suspect was taken to a local hospital by EMS where his condition is currently unknown. Police say the victim has a concealed weapon permit and was not arrested, but police added that the shooting is still under investigation. Mm, Wow. Sticky situation. Yeah. Yeah. I I think anytime, anytime you're chasing after someone while you're shooting and saying that you fear for your life, there's, it's going to be a tough sell. I'm not saying, you know, that there's going to be charges, but I think in, in, as a general rule, I think that you, you know, that's probably something you don't <laughs> necessarily want to replicate in this story. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. That, that is the kind of the, one of those things in this story that jumps out at you is it's like, okay, at first it's like, all right, he, you know, he says he feared for his life and perhaps rightfully so. Uh, and he draws his gun, he shoots. And at that point we could suppose that that is justified in, in, you know, his actions were justified, but the chasing after the suspect, that's where the issue lies. Uh, and continue to shoot at him. The, although there is this other interesting statement that says, and I'm not saying this necessarily makes that right, but it does add an interesting element where he says that the suspect then fled the scene while reaching for his waistband. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you know, all right. So if you see, you know, you just shot this guy and now he's, you know, he's reaching for something in his waistband. I mean, someone reaching into their waistband, Matthew, that says what? Yeah. I mean, they're trying to get probably pull a gun out or a weapon or, Maybe they're pulling up their pants because they're falling down. But yeah, I mean, your initial response if you've been just been assaulted is probably this person might be with pulling out a weapon. Yeah, but here's and, the thing, right? Is no, even if you are in a state with you know, like Florida, with you know, stand your ground laws. Stand your gl- ground means stand your ground. It doesn't mean chase after the guy. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I could understand to a certain point, um, you know, you if this person is maybe not running, trying to, maybe they're running, but they're not running away from you. Maybe they're running around a car so they can get some cover, so they can pull out their firearm and shoot at you. I could understand if you could articulate, you know, this person was running away from me, but they weren't running away to get away from me. They were running to get a better position so they could you know, start shooting at me, you know, something like that I could understand, but just, you know, pull out, Hey, I'm going to chase you down and shoot at you while I'm chasing you. Um, and, and, you know, that could be the way that the, the article was written. Maybe, you know, the facts aren't all there, but, um, yeah, I, I think 
you know, it's it's it could be problematic. I, I hope that they kind of and the problem with these stories is they never follow up and say, hey, this is what ended up happening, you know. Um, so we don't know if this guy is going to get charged or what's going to happen. But yeah, because it's still under investigation. But, you know, it'd be interesting to find out exactly what what the uh, ultimate outcome is. Yep. Indeed. Well, that's an interesting one, and hence why we shared it here today. Because, I mean, we take all these incident, incidents and try to use them as learning experiences. And the learning experience here is don't chase after somebody and shoot them. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, when it's that situation as we simply described. I mean, you described the one, Matthew, where, well, he was running to get to cover to draw his weapon to then you know, respond back to me with his own gun or whatever. Like, yes. And that's the, that's the key. Like with almost any justified shooting and a, a very important thing that we all must understand is the ability to articulate why you did what you did. And if you can articulate, I continued shooting even though he was running because I could tell and I could sense or for whatever reason, based on, I mean, maybe he's running back to the car that he originated from while he's pulling a gun out of his waistband. Well, that's, if you can articulate that, then, all right, you may have had cause to shoot while he was running that direction, but you got to be able to articulate it. And that's the key. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a petitioning to be his defense attorney. I was giving him some, <laughs> some ideas there. <laughs> <laughs> Probable scenarios. Right. Now, at the beginning of this episode today, we were talking about this uh, extreme risk protection order story out of Oregon, and we actually have two uh, justified stories to kind of wrap it up that sound like uh, potential um, domestic type situations where protection orders may have been involved. Um, I don't know if we know that for sure about both these stories. I think one of them, it said something about it, maybe, uh, actually, maybe not, but we have in this first story, this is in Dayton, Ohio, uh, title of the story on uh, WDTN.com, Channel 2 News, uh, says here, deadly Fairview Avenue shooting called self-defense. So in Dayton, Ohio, recently a, a woman was protecting herself when she shot and killed a man on Fairview, Fairview Avenue Tuesday night. The Montgomery County coroner identified the man who kicked down the woman's door before she shot him as 53-year-old Darren Orr. Police said Orr was suspected of serious crimes against the same woman Monday night. They wouldn't elaborate on those crimes. Neighbors told the two, told two news the two individuals had a turbulent relationship and Orr frequently act, acted aggressively. So, like I said, it sounds like a kind of a, a case of, you know, perhaps domestic violence or abuse uh, where this uh, Darren Orr fellow had a turbulent relationship with the victim. Uh, he kicked in a door and... And she shot him. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, and I, while you're reading that or while, while you're explaining it, you know, that our initial response or, or idea would be to think, okay, well, if she would have gotten a restraining order against him, you know, he wouldn't have been able to have a firearm and blah, blah, blah. And that would have made her a little bit safer. But, it, you know, in, in, you know, you've been in law enforcement and you, you know that, Law, uh, domestic violence situations, a lot of times they go back and forth. One person's arrested one week, the next person, the other person, or next week, the other person, right? Um, so let this scenario play out where what if, you know, she 
was kind of a bad person in the relationship uh, a couple months earlier, and she would have been arrested on a misdemeanor violent, uh, domestic violence charge, right? So then he get he justifiably says, you know, she's she's crazy, she scratched me up or whatever, and they say, you know what? Yep, we're going to take away her right to own firearms. Now, you know, fast forward a couple months later, now he decides he's going to be the bad guy, breaks in, and now she doesn't have a firearm because it's legal. She can't legally possess it. Right. She can't defend herself. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, as you know, we always kind of jump to the conclusion, like the bad, the, the guy's always a bad guy, you know, that, that he's always should be stripped of his rights. And, 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 but sometimes these go back and forth and you, you end up in a situation where nobody can defend themselves against a legitimate, a legitimate attack. Um, yeah. so yeah, that's just something that stood out while you were explaining that. And I thought, you know what, you know, she, good thing she had the ability to defend herself, you know, um, because if not, who knows what happened. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, as it did say also in the article that, uh, uh, that this man, Darren Orr frequently acted aggressively, uh, which definitely doesn't, you know, it definitely paints this picture that he had some issues. I mean, maybe the woman did too, but we're not going to necessarily, you know, suppose on that right now, but you're, well, you, the situations you described certainly do happen where these uh, situations sometimes do play out back and forth. Now, uh, the thing I was thinking about is how in the state of Oregon, we are talking about passing a law where we take away second amendment rights simply because a say a spouse or partner uh, files an extreme risk protection order against you, uh, you know, without any sort of real due process. Instead, you know, the gun grabbers would never talk about putting training in the hands of and putting a gun in the hands of someone, you know, a, a, a victim to defend themselves. And yet here we have a situation where, we have you know a situation where a woman has to defend herself against a violent man, and she's able to do so because she lives here and not in the UK. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, uh, ah, just amazing stuff, crazy stuff. Now, oh, th- it was this last story here: Lex- Lexington, Kentucky, uh, man killed at home of ex-girlfriend after EPO filed. Uh, that is a, uh, a protection order. Okay. And uh, so, essentially, this guy, let's see, what was his name? Um, Sevier. Jody Sevier, or Sevier. Uh, He was shot at his ex-girlfriend's home as he tried to harm his ex-girlfriend. In fact, he had an explosive device in his truck. So police are called to this house. Uh, they show up at this at at her at the ex ex girlfriend's home, and what they find is that uh, she shot him after he allegedly whipped a child with an electrical cord. Now that's a little interesting, but there's obviously more to this story. It, it's not like she shot him simply because he was. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of him whipping a child with an electrical cord and suggesting that's not. You know, like, that's not cool. <laughs> but it's clear that, you know, this dude had a bomb in his truck and was clearly a threat to uh, his ex-girlfriend and to, I assume, her child here at this residence. And she felt at some point that she needed to uh, use deadly force to prevent him from from harming them any further. 
So not a lot of details in this story, by the way, but this is, I mean, wow. I mean, here, here we're talking about a restraining order that is in place. Um, you know, unfortunately, I mean, you talked about the value of, of restraining orders and that they, that they do do some good. Um, but and we do see plenty of situations where just like gun control laws or gun, gun regulation, uh, you know, our gun regulations are ignored by criminals. Restraining orders are ignored oftentimes by uh, people oh, intent on committing a crime. Uh, and so even all the more reason, I think, that the the important thing, the crux of the issue is that we as individuals that live in this free country, that we take responsibility for ourselves, for our own lives, for our own defense and protection, if we feel necessary. We do, and that we do so responsibly, that we do get training, that we do uh, practice, that we make sure that we are prepared to use that firearm if we need to, and that we may, that we understand the laws and we understand you know, when it is appropriate to do so. And of course, we know that when human life is at stake, when someone's life is is at risk, um, in most cases, that's that that is cause for using deadly force. It's just important, I think, that that we shift the conversation in many in many cases away from this idea of let's have the government control people's lives more and more to let's take responsibility for our own lives, be prepared, be well trained and be able to defend ourselves if necessary. And clearly in this situation as well, similar to that last one, the ex-girlfriend was able to defend herself and her child. Yeah. Amen. I mean, um, you can't legislate a good heart, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, make laws that are going to make people, um, possess the inner strength or the inner, under morals, you know, you, you can't legislate morals. You, you, you have to build those and, and, um, the people that decide to violate those morals and you have to punish those people. But like you said, you have to give the good people the ability and the right to protect themselves, um, against those mm -hmm. people that just won't, won't be deterred by a law. They won't be deterred by going to jail or anything. I mean, they, they deserve the right to be protected and be able to protect themselves. Yeah. Well, you know, we established that, I think, pretty well in last week's episode of the podcast on Monday, talking about kind of like this concept of right of self-defense and, mm -hmm. and and where our forefathers, our founding fathers, you know, they incorporated into, uh, even into the Declaration of Independence, but also into the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the idea of and, and the need, recognizing the need for a right to keep and bear arms. So, there you have it. That's our podcast for today. Uh, I appreciate you all for listening. Uh, and certainly hope and would encourage you, uh, similar to what I touched on a little bit ago, to write your legislators, uh, make sure they know where you stand as, as a citizen on many of these issues that we see coming up all across the country. Uh, California is a, is a battleground right now for gun rights. Uh, Oregon now, I mean, has this, 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 issue where second amendment rights are going to be trampled on with this, uh, this new law that, uh, is most likely going to be signed by the governor here very soon, uh, and all across the country, please be good, responsible and involved citizens. 
So today's episode, by the way, is brought to you by Pig Loop. Pig Loop believes in putting the fun back in shooting with their synthesized bacon grease gun lubricant. But all joking aside, Pig's Pig Loop provides excellent lubrication for both rifles and handguns. With a unique applicator and competitive pricing, try Pig Lube today. Now available on concealedcarry.com forward slash Pig Lube. And for a limited time, get free shipping on all Pig Lube orders. And also today's episode brought to you by Mantis X. Being called the instructor in your pocket, Mantis X attaches to your firearm and sends real-time data back to your mobile phone that will guide you in correcting the most common deficiencies as a shooter. Please check it out. Mantis X will, I promise you, become your new best friend. And you can also check out a little video where myself and Jacob review uh, Mantis X as a product. And so go learn more at concealedcarry.com forward slash Mantis X. So there you have it. Uh, Matthew, thanks for joining with me on the podcast here today. No, thank you. I, I totally appreciate it. Um, love being here with you and talking about these uh, these stories. Yeah, same here, bro. So it was, it, was, it was a doozy of an episode, I think. I mean, a lot of crazy stuff out there. Uh, stay tuned. We'll have uh, our usual Wednesday episode of the podcast uh, coming out here later this week. Uh, we look forward to catching you all then at that time. Uh, just a reminder, folks that uh, to to train right, train often, train safe, so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Stay safe out there. Take care. We'll see you next time. Reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.